When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, January 30th. We are back in the normal rhythm on the pro tennis calendar as we have action spread out across the globe. Two tour-level events for the women, one tour-level event for the men, and four ATP challengers for tennis fans to follow as all of us enjoy our first week of post-Australian Open play on today's show, as I like to do at the start of any new week on the pro tennis calendar. I want to break down all the draws for all of you tennis fans, keep you up to date on the storylines you'll need to monitor throughout the course of the week, and perhaps also help you prioritize what you should be watching. Now, I am going to spend some particular time on today's show breaking down the ATP Challenger event in Cleveland. The reason for that fact is I'm going to be on the road for the first time in this 2024 season. So blessed to be serving as the MC for that Cleveland Challenger once again. And look, I'll just be honest with all of you listeners. My focus is going to be that Cleveland Challenger action. I will be sitting courtside watching a lot of the day's best matches unfold. And as such, I'm going to want to talk about them on each and every mini break podcast we have this week. Thus, to help prepare all of you listeners for that fact, I'm going to spend some additional time perhaps offering you background of players you may know less about, but players I certainly find intriguing and am looking forward to watching compete this week in Cleveland. Feels like today's show is the best place to do that. So again, there will be particular focus on the 500 level women's event in Linz, on the 250s in Hua Hin for the women, in Montpellier for the men. But I'm also going to prioritize that Cleveland challenger this week as I'll be watching again so much of that action unfold in person. I will also do my best to get there a little bit early each and every day, try and find some time to speak with some of the players participating, get their thoughts not only on where they are at in their careers, but perhaps some of the other broader more uh, broader storylines, excuse me, we have unfolding right now in the men's game. It's just, it's always great to be on site, always a blast to have that sort of opportunity. So that may impact, by the way, the release times of these podcasts each and every day. I just don't know exactly what my schedule will look like in Cleveland, but quite yet. Nevertheless, we will certainly have podcasts for you Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, hopefully Saturday and Sunday as well as it promises to be an exciting week in the pro tennis world. And I don't want to miss anything. I don't want you listeners to feel like you have missed out on anything either. And hopefully you use this podcast to keep you up to date on everything happening in the tennis world. Hopefully you also use it to just for personal enjoyment. Obviously, that's what I'm trying to provide for all of you listeners. And in that spirit, you know, it's year five, year six of doing this mini break podcast. I don't want this show to get stale. So I want to change up the format a little bit moving forward. I want to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to start with more formal opens 
on these podcasts. Obviously, we'll still do the intros more broadly. What are we talking about? What are the things I need to plug? And as always, make sure you're subscribed. Cracked Interviews podcast feed, Great Shot podcast feed, Mini Break podcast feed, our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel, as well as we're just going to have more content on there in 2024 than we have than we ever have before. But I want to also introduce some openings to these shows. And I'm not going to do them every day, but I am going to try and do them more frequently. And I'm going to focus those openings on topics that may not be specifically related to any given week's action, but are still related to storylines we are monitoring more broadly in the pro tennis world at any given moment. And thus today's opening, it's got to be about one of the biggest storylines we have. I know it's a little mainstream for me to go this way to open the show, but I want to offer my thoughts on the six-month runs we've seen from both Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner over the course of the past year. Obviously, those peaks didn't overlap in a way that maybe tennis fans would have most enjoyed, but to see what Alcaraz did from February through the end of Wimbledon last year, to see what Sinner has done from Wimbledon to the start of the uh, through the start of the Australian Open, and I guess completion of the Australian Open this year, they're both world number one type runs, and it's just worth breaking down with further depth what exactly those runs have contained and why it speaks so highly of each guy's future. Now, that's not exactly the hot take where I want to start to get a little bit interesting because it wouldn't just be an opening if I'm listing stats. Let's compare the two. Who's had the better peak to date thus far? I think it's a fun conversation. I think it's the sort of debate if I was around my friends more frequently now. We just happen to be scattered across the globe, but around my tennis friends in particular, these would be the debates, the discussions we would be having when we're not hitting or, you know, again, enjoying tennis just in person with one another. And I imagine it's a discussion many of you listeners are having with your tennis companions as well. So I'm going to try to introduce more openings like that this week in particular. I guess a little tease. I'm going to do Sinner versus Alcaraz. I want to do Sviantec versus Sabalenka since the 2022 U.S. Open. Who is the world number one right now in the women's game? I want to talk about my top eights as well. That's a new exercise I'm going to do at the start of every month. So we'll save that one for Thursday. But I want to offer you a snapshot. Who do I think the eight best players in the world are at the start of every every month. It'll be fun for us to look back at those. What did I get right? What did I get wrong? How have things changed? But of course, those top eight players, those are the contenders of all contenders. Those are the players we honor at the end of the year. We let them go compete amongst one another at the tour finals to see who the best player at any given season at the end of any given season is. I think it's a fun exercise. It's something we can turn into a YouTube segment as well. So again, more things like that planned for the future on this show. And today, the opening going to be Sinner versus Alcaraz related. That said, before we get to it, again, a shout out as always to all of you listeners for tuning day in, day out. A shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. You heard me touch on this topic too Uh, throughout the course of yesterday's show with David Kane. But again, to open today's show, I want to discuss Yannick Sinner versus Carlos Alcaraz and what we've seen each of them put forward over the course of the past year. The sort of six-month runs every player not only dreams about as a young kid, but aspires for throughout the course of their professional careers. And again, Alcaraz is still just 20. Sinner is still just 22, and the fact that they have both put together not just a three-week stretch, not just 
a month stretch, not even a two-month stretch. No, a half-season stretch where they have looked like the best player in the world, in a world that Novak Djokovic still exists within. The significance of that speaks to itself. And look, Carlos Alcaraz has two majors before turning 21 years old. The list of players to do that, particularly in the 21st century, is not particularly long. The list of players to win multiple majors in the 21st century, not particularly uh, long, right? So in the big three era, it's Federer, it's Djokovic, it's Nadal, it's Murray, it's Wawrinka, it's Alcaraz, and I think that's it, right? Because Medvedev has one, Chilich has one, I'm sure, uh, Del Potro only got the one, Um that's the list, right? Like, you can do the men's list off the top of your head. Obviously, Sinner now has the one as well. But it speaks to how few men have penetrated that bubble of world number one tennis over the past 15 years. Obviously, it's been really hard to do with the guys we've had at the top. But eventually, their reign will end. And it's just very clear these two have positioned themselves in a way that, again, no other player has over the course of these past 15 years to take the torch from the big three and from here move forward as the best players in the world. And let's just start with the guy who's done it more recently, Yannick Sinner. Now, you guys have heard these numbers repeatedly over the course of the past few weeks as we've all marveled at what Sinner accomplished in Melbourne, capturing his first major title. But that was the culmination of, again, a six-month run starting with Wimbledon last year where he makes the Wimbledon semifinal. Now, it was a loss decisively to Djokovic in straight sets in that semifinal, but a semifinal at the major nevertheless his first, by the way, of his career. So that was a threshold to get over. From there, he goes directly to Canada. He wins his first 1,000-level title at the Masters. Again, was it the most difficult draw? No, but it's another hurdle for Sinner to climb. And obviously, again, goes to Beijing. After a disappointing U.S. Open five-set loss to Zverev, round of 16 in Beijing, what does he do to make up for it? He beats Dimitrov, Alcaraz, and Medvedev back-to-back-to-back, three of the best eight players we had in the world to end last season. Beats them all on the way to the final in Beijing. What does he do in Vienna? He beats Tiafo, Rublev, Medvedev back-to-back-to-back on his way to that title in Vienna. By the way, for him to beat Medvedev back-to-back after he was 0-6 against Medvedev in their first six matchups, that was a significant thing for Sinner to have accomplished along with the first slam semifinal, along with the first 1,000-level title. He just kept racking up these things consecutively. Obviously, beats Djokovic in the Tour Finals round robin play before losing to him in the Tour Finals final. But then, in a match, Djokovic clearly cared very deeply about. And the reason I bring that up is because it was late November tennis, and you only read so much into late November tennis, particularly late November tennis that isn't a tour-level event. But this was Davis Cup, and we know how much representing Serbia means to Novak Djokovic. And from match points down, you know, again, 5-4, love 40, right? Sinner fights off those match points. He beats Djokovic. He sends Italy to their first Davis Cup title in over 25 years. And again, the winning just kept on coming as he drops just three sets, beats Djokovic, Medvedev, Rublev, three of the five best players in the world by the rankings, 
beats them all consecutively as he makes his way, uh, as he ultimately makes his first slam final and wins his first slam title. Oh, by the way, it was just his second win ever from two sets to love down uh, when he beats Medvedev in that final. Those are the totality of things, just mini storylines that you may have forgotten through the totality of Sinner's run as he has checked off all of these boxes. And, you know, again, I've mentioned this. He has held serve. He's 39 and 5 overall since the start of Wimbledon. That's an 89% win percentage. That is freaking ridiculous. He's held serve 90.8% of the time. What was Isner? 91.3, 91.7. Anyways, if you are above 90%, that's the elite of the elite. That's Isner, Prime Kyrios, Prime Federer. Those are the only people who live in that over 90% territory for a season long stretch. It's not a full season. But it's six months. And for what it's worth over his last 52 weeks, 66 and 13 overall, he's held serve 88.6% of the time. So it's nearly for a full season. That's ridiculous. He's breaking serve 27.1% of the time. Again, Medvedev's career average, like 27.3, 27.5. These are just statistics, but he is breaking serve like Medvedev and he is holding serve like Isner. That's a good player, surface value. And obviously, when you watch him play, it's it's kind of a... I mean, again, Isner's not the right comparison because it's so serve-dependent, but Sinner's ability to dominate with his weapons, again, just out-hit any opponent that he faces. Obviously, was Djokovic very poor in that semifinal? He was, but go back to the round-robin win at the Tour Finals. Go back to the Davis Cup victory where the pace Sinner can play with from the baseline just puts significant pressure on Djokovic, forces him to have to play more aggressively, to have to be that much more decisive whenever Sinner does have those rare opportunities and leave something short. We saw Medvedev employ a form of aggression that we just had not seen from him in years to hug the baseline as tightly as he did on the return of serve and do all these different things to try and take time away from Yannick Sinner. You can't give Sinner time because if you do, his pace will overwhelm you. He is more consistent with that pace than anyone has any right being. And it's just physically, you don't have the questions about him at 22 that you did when he was 19, 20, 21, uh, 19 and 20 more than anything. And clearly, even early 21 would struggle as matches would progress and would have cramping issues or would start to get, you know, slow things down. And you could understand why it was very tangible with how skinny he is. He looked like a child sometimes out there who just had these massive weapons competing against the adults. That's no longer the case. And again, 39-5 and five overall during this stretch of time. You look in terms of total tour-level events he's played. He's played nine tour-level events. He's made five quarterfinals and four. I mean, it's just simpler than this. He's made nine tour-level events, and he's made five finals. Five quarterfinals, five finals during that stretch of time. Four titles as well uh, since the end of Wimbledon. Again, four titles, five finals, his one loss in a final in the tour finals final to Novak Djokovic, who not only had he already beaten early in that event, but of course, he beats him in Davis Cup as well, and the Davis Cup doesn't count as a title, but let's call it five titles since he led Italy to that Davis Cup run. So five titles, uh, five titles, six finals in 10 total events played. Uh, 11 total events played because I got to include the tour finals if I'm going to include Davis Cup as well. Let's try that one more time. Five titles, seven finals in 10 total events played. That's really freaking good. 
And you look at the strength of schedule as well. Obviously, Sinner's beating who he's supposed to be. 20-1 and one against opponents ranked outside the top 20 and his only loss to a guy in Dusan Lajevic who beat him the day after he had won his first 1,000-level title in Canada. So we'll call that a schedule loss. We'll throw it out. We'll say he's 20-1 overall in matches that mattered to Sinner in the moment against opponents ranked outside the top 20. Against top 20 opponents, he's 19-4. and four. Against the top 10, he's 12-2. and two. And the biggest number you can point to in that 12-2 and two stretch, eight of those 12 victories have come against Medvedev, Djokovic, or Alcaraz. You know, eight and two overall, nine of the 10 matches have been played on hard courts as well. So it's not as though he's beating Medvedev on clay. It's not as though he's beating Alcaraz. I mean, he's beating Alcaraz on hard courts, but Alcaraz is a U.S. Open champion. He's beating Novak freaking Djokovic on hard courts in a best of five set match. It's just real. Like It's just six months consecutively of that. And he's beating the biggest rivals in the game in the biggest moments. Again, he beats Djokovic, Medvedev back-to-back for the Australian Open title. He beats Medvedev, Elkarez back-to-back for the Beijing title. He beats Rublev on his way to there as well. He beats Djokovic on his way to Davis Cup. We just have... When was the last time we saw someone go 3-1 and one against Djokovic in a four-match span? I imagine the guy's name was either Murray, Federer, Nadal, or maybe Stan. Like, maybe Stan, but I feel like Stan's successes were pretty far spread out. You just don't see this happening. And look, it's 36-year-old Djokovic, not 26-year-old Djokovic. Of course that matters. But that hasn't mattered to anyone else in the pro tennis world. And it's just a peak. It is a real world number one peak. And it just can't be written off what Yannick Sinner has done now for six months consecutively. And it's why people in their minds... It's a little bit recency bias, but you're ready to put him above Alcaraz in the conversation, which is crazy to say because Alcaraz was so dominant in that conversation through the first 24 months of the argument. And, you know, again, now that Yannick Sinner is a major champion, it's just a little bit easier to have that comparison because they both have one big trophy in their belt and such a long runway for them to continue to rack up those accolades. But it is just worth re-examining before you hot take your way into, oh, Sinner clearly has the edge on Carlos Alcaraz now. Carlos Alcaraz has struggled so mightily of recent. Like, no, he hasn't. Carlos Alcaraz is 69-13 and 13 over his last 52 weeks. And yeah, he stumbled down the home stretch. And you look overall, since uh, the end of Wimbledon last year, Carlos Alcaraz 22-9. and nine. Dare I say that's extraordinarily pedestrian for Carlos Alcaraz. But keep in mind, Who were those nine losses to for Carlos Alcaraz during that stretch? Those nine losses, the one bad one you would say is maybe Tommy Paul in Canada, but did you watch that match, how well Tommy was playing? He's lost to Tommy, Djokovic, Medvedev, Sinner, Djokovic, Zverev, Zverev, Safulin, and who am I missing? And Oh, and I didn't include the Tommy Paul match. Like... Again, in Roman Sefulin, that might be the the outlier. That's the one maybe he wants back, not his greatest result. But, like, the rest of those losses, what, of those nine losses, seven of the nine are the top five players in the world, if you include Zverev in that conversation, they're top six players in the world. Like, no shame in that result. And then again, like, again, it, it's not as good as, I suppose, Yannick, Yannick Sinner has been of late. But do you remember how good Carlos Alcaraz was to start last season he was 47 and 4. 47 and 4. I mentioned the center percentage, 39 and 5. That's a ridiculous 89% win percentage. 
Alcaraz was 47-4. and four. He won 92% of his matches. The list of players to do that over a season is Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Borg. That's the list on the men's side of the over 90% club for a full season. And it wasn't a full season, but it was six months. Six months of 47-4 and four tennis from a guy who turned 20 years old in May of last year. During that stretch of time, Carlos Alcaraz played a total of... 10 events uh, during that stretch. He made the quarterfinals or further at nine of those 10 events. He made the finals of seven of them, and he won six titles during that stretch, include, including his own five-set victory over Novak Djokovic, his in a Wimbledon final, uh, obviously Sinner's victory coming over Djokovic uh, in the Australian Open semis. But, you know, again, 47 and four. Was his hold percentage 90, you know, over 90%? No. It was still 86.3. That's still a top 10 clip. The ridiculous number for Alcaraz is what was his break percentage during that time? And a lot of clay court matches, so you're going to break serve more frequently on the slower surface. Carlos Alcaraz was breaking serve 34.5% of the time. At one out of every three service games or more, he was breaking his opponent. That's prime Djokovician. That's prime Rafa. That is as good of a break percentage as you will see, and he did it for six months consecutively during this 47-4 and four stretch. He was 16-3 and three against top 20 opponents, 8-1 and one against the top 10 with a win over Djokovic, with a couple of wins over Medvedev. He didn't play center during this stretch. Uh, he didn't play Sinner during this stretch. Is that right? I guess. No, he played Sinner at Indian Wells. Indian Wells, though, Sinner was the 11th seed. So 6-3 and three win for then at the time. Top 20, not top 10. So he beat Sinner. He beat Medvedev. He beat Djokovic. He beat his peers, albeit not as frequently. Again, Sinner 8-2 and two during his stretch. You look for Alcaraz during that time. He was, what, 1-2, 2-2, 2-4, 2-4 Two and four, two and four against the the other top three being Medvedev, Sinner, and Djokovic during that stretch. That's where the argument for Sinner begins. It's that he is play, you know again sixteen and three is really good against top twenty opponents. Sinner was better against the, uh, against the top twenty. He was nineteen and four, eight and one against the top ten as Alcaraz was. That's really good. Sinner was better. He was twelve and two. He played them more frequently. Helped that he got five matches against them at the tour finals, but he went four and one in those five matches, made the most of those opportunities, made it to the tour finals. Alcaraz had that uh, chance, obviously, at the end of the season, wasn't quite able to capitalize. Look, the thing about Sinner is the multi-dimensions to it, right? It's that he was able to match the consistency of a Medvedev. He was able to outpower and force this over-adjustment from a Novak Djokovic and... Again, he was able in that Medvedev match to grind his way back in a way just sometimes Alcaraz isn't able to. And what I mean by that is, and I've said this before, I just feel like Alcaraz's solution is to overwhelm you. That's his solution to everything is he's going to swing his way out of problems. He's just going to try and go big and just try to overwhelm you with his athleticism. His, never in Carlos Alcaraz's mind is the option win struggling to slow down. And I just feel like Sinner, albeit a year and a half older, has more gears. He is willing to slow things down, willing to open things up, willing to be a little bit more patient with his spots. Again, the totality of the Alcaraz, things Carlos Alcaraz can do on court, 
there's no doubt he matches anyone. But Yannick Sinner has rounded out his skill set so well. He was not a good volleyer early in his career. That has been a practiced addition to his game. He's able to find a gear of consistency to work his way back, that Medvedev match being the clinical example. And just like Alcaraz wasn't able to do that. He wasn't able to find a third or fourth gear to turn to against Zverev when clearly his serve, his forehand were struggling. Sinner's, Sinner's six-month run is more impressive. It just is because he's 8-2 and two against the three guys he has to beat most frequently, and he's been doing it. Yeah, I know Vienna and Beijing were both 500-level events, but he just did it at the Australian Open. I mean, again, it's like the Sinner six-month run is better. The Alcaraz six-month run is still ridiculous, and if you wanted to compare best 12-month stretch, Alcaraz still wins that debate. His 2020, you know, U.S. Open 2022 through Wimbledon 2023 is better than a full-year stretch we have seen from Yannick Sinner. But Sinner's had the better six-month run. Like, Sinner's peak has been higher. And if you don't want to take my word for it, let's go to the metrics. Our dear friends at Tennis Abstract, who, of course, have peak ELO, right? What is the highest ELO rating, which measures who you played, how you played them? Wow. This is fascinating. Peak ELO right now, 5.1 ELO points. That's essentially nothing. That's like one game in one match against a top 10 opponent. Carlos Alcaraz, the slightly higher peak ELO, 22, uh, 2239.7, which he had after the end of Wimbledon versus where Sinner is right now, 2234.6. I don't know if I agree. Like, I mean, again, it speaks to how close that it is that I think you can have a legitimate disagreement. And for what it's worth, right now, Yannick Sinner, number one in overall ELO. He's above Djokovic. He's above Alcaraz. He's got the momentum. He's got the results. I agree with those metrics rather than him having the number four in the world rankings metric. He's currently at... (sighs) I do think Alcaraz had the better year run. Like, who am I... I don't. I, there's a narrative coming out of this that Alcaraz somehow has fallen off in this 22 and nine run he's had since the end of Wimbledon. I think that's a fallacy. I just think Sinner has caught up. I think Medvedev sustained. I think Djokovic is freaking Djokovic. Like Alcaraz has been fine. Again, you want to go for the Alcaraz numbers just to put the final thoughts on this discussion. Then I swear we'll get to previewing what's going on this week. You look for Carlos Alcaraz since the end of Wimbledon last year. Carlos Alcaraz overall during this stretch of time. First of all, eight and eight versus top twenty opponents. Three and six versus the top ten. Not the greatest, but twenty two and nine overall. The finals of Cincinnati against Djokovic. That three set. Three-hour, 49-minute thriller, maybe the best match we saw last year. Yeah, he loses U.S. Open semifinals to Medvedev. That was the best performance I've ever seen from Daniil Medvedev. And he loses four sets to Zverev. Zverev made 85% of his first serves at this Australian Open. Like, again, the Asian swing last year wasn't great. Losses to Dimitrov, Safiulin, Sinner, like... Not what he was looking for. No finals during that stretch, which for Carlos Alcaraz is unexpected to stay the least. He's played seven events since the end of Wimbledon. He's made the quarters of five of them. He's only made the final of one, but like four semifinals during that stretch as well. He's still very much in the conversation. He may be three and six against the top 10, but two losses to Djokovic, a loss to Sinner, and losses to Medvedev, Zverev, respectively, and maybe the best matches that they have played. So, yeah, maybe there have been some struggles for Carlos Alcaraz that you just weren't seeing during that 47-4 and stretch. 
I ain't worried about his 22-9 and nine since the end of Wimbledon. I will say, it's an open discussion now. This six-month run from Yannick Sinner, I think, is more impressive than the six-month run we saw from Carlos Alcaraz February to end of Wimbledon last season. They both got one major title out of it. I know Alcaraz got six titles to Sinner's five, if you inclu- uh, include the Davis Cup. But Sinner beat more top 10 opponents. He beat the guys you need to beat with a degree of consistency. Just, again, we haven't really seen from anyone over the course of the last half decade. So credit to Yannick Sinner. He's made it a real race. Once again, that's the discussion. Sinner versus Alcaraz. The rivalry is very clear. And it's hilarious that six months ago, after the French Open, you were thinking, all right, after this run we've seen from Holger Runa on the clay, has he surpassed Sinner? Is it an Alcaraz-Runa discussion now with Sinner looking on the outside uh, on the outside looking in? I was never of that position. I know our dear friend David Kane was. Yannick Sinner's in the inner circle. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I think everyone is ready to crown him one of the guys moving forward. And the question is, one of the guys or the guy Six months to six months, Sinner is better. Sinner's also a year and a half older, so now it's Alcaraz's turn to respond. And man, is that an exciting thing to look forward to. Unfortunately, neither going to be playing this week on the ATP Tour, or uh, but we still do have plenty of fun action spread out th- across the pro tennis world. And that intro went a little bit longer. That opening, excuse me, a little bit longer than I expected. I'll try to tighten those up moving forward. But let's now move on to talk about the tour-level action we have on the calendar this week Again, it starts off with the 500 level in action in Linz. Now, we don't have any current top 10 players in the live rankings in action, but we do have five in the top 30 as top seed Yelena Ostapenko's in action. Ostapenko's been one of my top eight players to start this year. Her only losses are to Victoria Azarenka, right? She loses to Azarenka Brisbane quarterfinals, Australian Open third round, sandwiched in between that, a run to the Adelaide title. She's been as consistent as ever over the course of this last 52-week stretch. And again, she's 46 and 24 overall since the start of last year. It's as many wins as she has had since 2017 in a 52-week stretch. And so right now, Ostapenko, also one of 10 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Can she sustain this level? Again, she is the highest-ranked player in the draw. And according to Tennis Abstract, a 33.5% favorite. Her biggest challenger, Ekaterina Alexandrova, the number two seed. 14.3% is the current live ranking. Number 20, of course. Elsewhere, your other top 30 players to keep an eye on. Elisa Mertens, who's off to a really hot start to her season. Again, tough loss, sure, uh, for her at the, excuse me, uh, Australian Open. But we saw her make the final, playing really good play in Hobart before losing to Navarro. And a 7-6 in the third loss to Kostjuk, second round of the Australian Open, certainly aged well. Given Kostjuk went on to the quarterfinals. So, you know, of the top seeds in action, I would say Mertens, Ostapenko have started their season the best, and thus they would probably be the ones to watch more most closely. But uh, of course, beyond that, plenty of other fun storylines. You look at the players. I mentioned the 10 players right now in the top 50, top 25 in both hold and break percentage. If you expand that to the top 100, you've got a couple of other players on that list, and that includes Katie Bolter, who already earned an upset victory. Bolter knocks out six-seeded Jasmine Paolini, two and two indoor hard courts with her aggression, her ability to hold that baseline. 
she's striking the ball perfectly. She's playing like a top 50 player right now, how well she's moving. And again, it's helped that she's probably had the longest period of extended health in her career, but both her advances over six seed Jasmine Paolini sets up a really fun power tennis matchup as she's going to take on Pavlachenkova. Pavlachenkova playing top 50 tennis once again. Her weapons from the ground undeniable. A lot of first strike going to be the key in that Bolter-Pavlachenkova match. I think Bolter's the better mover right now. Pavlachenkova hits a more dynamic ball, but Tennis Abstract has that as a 56.9% Pavlachenkova favorite. That means they think it's going to be close. I would certainly agree with that assessment. Uh, again, Pavs, Bolter, two to watch on this list. And then what about Diana Yastremska? Now in the top 30, fresh up in Australian Open semifinal run, wild card into this event. Uh, she's going to take wild card Sinja Kraus in round number one, potential round number two date. Oh, excuse me. She's going to take on Erika Andriva, the qualifier. Yes, older sister of Mira. Uh, Erica's solid herself, not one to certainly blink, but Yastrzemska the power advantage if she continues the level we saw from her in Australia. She should get through that, and then a power tennis date with third-seeded Donna Vekic perhaps awaiting her in the round of 16. Again, right now, according to Tennis Abstract, Yelena Ostapenko, 33.5% favored. She's going to have a tough test right out of the gates, taking on qualifier Clara Tossin. Tossin, of course, the big-hitting young Dane. Very important three-set win for her in round one over Camilla Georgie as Tossin tries to uh, keep her spot inside the top 100. And after qualifying and winning a round, she's now up 12 spots to number 79, which certainly keeps her in play at the minimum for qualifying during the sunshine swing. Again, with her power tennis... Clara Tossin can make anyone uncomfortable. That's the blockbuster round of 16 matchup to keep an eye on for that. Bolter versus Pavlachenkova, uh, probably my two. And then, you know, again, a potential matchup between perhaps Vekic and Andriva on this one. But again, Ostapenko, 33.5% favorite. Merton, uh, after that, excuse me, Alexandrova, 14-3. Merton's 10.9%. And then, dare I say, after that, a pretty significant drop to Pavlachenkova. But a lot of things to watch for. Again, can Ostapenko, Merton sustain their early season success? Same with Pavs, Bolter. Can they continue to make pushes towards that top 35? Is it going to be one of those weeks for Katarina Alexandrova? Is it going to be one of those weeks for Potapova, the number five seed coming off of a very disappointing uh opening month of the year. She's got a lot of points to defend during the sunshine swing. Needs to get things going before she has those points come off of her resume. Uh, Again, though, that's your look at the Lindstraw this week. 500 level event, our highest level event on the calendar. Certainly we'll keep you up to date on that throughout the course of the week. Our other tour level event on the women's side happening in Huajin. Already gotten a couple of fascinating first round battles. Certainly was fun watching Paula Badosa get pushed by Lanlana uh, Tararudi. Now, I had never seen Tararudi play prior, the wild card from Thailand, uh, getting the wild card into her home event. Her back end was springy. Like, she was just making Bedosa work. And these courts in Huajin are Indian Wells degree of slow for hard courts. Nevertheless, again, credit to Bedosa, able to grind her way through 3-6-6-4-6-1. Bedosa able to take out Tara Rudy, uh, advance to a round two date with Diana Schneider and not top seed Magda Lynette as Schneider, the former NC State All-American, just able to work Lynette around the court. Lynette really struggled to hit through these slow courts. They were slow, high bouncing that's perfect for the heavy topspin lefty tennis Dai Schnei likes to play 
It's a massive win for Schneider. She knocks back on the door of the top 100. Schneider currently sitting at 101 in the live rankings. Uh, beyond that, again, pretty descript. Only one other seed knocked out. It was six-seeded Yuan Yua, knocked out by Rodianova. Good to see her continue her level uh, as she earns a 6-3 third-set win, uh, her level that we saw from her to start the season. Outside of that, good wins for players like Alinda Fruvertova trying to steady the ship. Uh, good win for Wang Yafan. The 27-year-old continues to make a push up, up the uh, rankings. You look for her uh, with the win back up three spots as the 29-year-old to number 75. Impressive straight set victory over 16-year-old qualifier, excuse me, Alina Kornieva. Kornieva, good for her for qualifying into the main draw, but again, just wasn't wasn't quite consistent enough to deal with the physicality that Wang Yafan threw at her. Other than that, Wang Xinyu, Wang Xiyu, both round one winners, Shmidova, Putenseva, uh, each surviving. Shmidova 6-6 six and six over Mai Hatama, Putenseva 6-2 in the third over recent Iowa State graduate Tassaporn Naklau. Uh, good to see Naklau wildcard into her home country event. Uh, push a top 50 a player, uh, excuse me, top 75 player in her maiden attempt. Still moving forward right now. Badosa, the favorite according to Tennis Abstract, 22.3%. Again, very much looking forward to seeing how she deals with the springiness of the Diana Schneider game. You've got Dalma Golfi taking on Wang Shiyu as Golfi knocked out Ayla Tamjanovic in straight sets. Uh, again, Badosa, the favorite, 22.3%. After that, second seeded Ju Lin, 16.7%. She's taken on the talented teenager, Linda Fruvertova. After that, a bunch of 7, 8, 9%. It's pretty level field across the board, given, again, we just don't know. We don't have a big enough sample size to know which Paula Bedosa precisely we're getting. Now, I think things are trending up. Uh, and again, for her to grind out the match where she wasn't playing her best in round number one, certainly a big spot for her moving forward. But uh, yeah, again, that is your undercard WTA event happening in Huahin this week, and certainly one we will keep an eye on given the plethora of talented young players. Again, the two talented young Chinese, young 20-year-olds, 20, 20 not 20 exactly, but early 20s, Wang Shi, Wang Xinyu, Katie Valinets got a round one win. Shout out to the young American, Dai Schnei versus Bedosa. Certainly things to keep us entertained as tennis fans. So that is your action happening in Hua Hin. On the men's side, you look at the action in Montpellier. Certainly, uh, again, fascinating to see who chooses to compete in this first post-Australian Open week. You've got Holgaruna in action. He's the favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, 26.7%. The top seed will face out the, against the winner of Gasquet and Lamas Ruiz, which was still concluding as of the starting of this recording. Obviously, big upset already in Montpellier. Benoit Paire, his first, dare I say, relevant win in quite some time. Three-set comfort behind victory. Dropped the first against Andy Murray. Was able to just steady his way through it was tough to watch Murray struggle to create any sort of offense for himself throughout the course of this match. If I start talking about it too much, I'll just start getting sad. But, I mean, again, for him to lose it to Benoit, who had a home crowd rollicking behind him, playing in France, certainly fun to see, but uh, it hurt. That was one Murray should have had, and again, he faded a little physically down the home stretch after losing that second set in the breaker. So credit to Pear. Big win for him. He needed it as he tries to make another top 100 push, but tough loss for Andy, certainly, to kick things off here in Montpellier. Tough start for him. Again, the loss against Echeverry, round one, Australia. Now another first-round loss here in Montpellier. Again, hopefully, he's able to get another push. I'll raise his level because the tennis world is just a better place when Andy Murray is playing his best. Outside of that, the notable round one results, massive victory. 
victory for Denis Shapovalov. It's just been a while since we've seen him earn a win. And again, Hugo Gaston, the lefty Frenchman who doesn't have the biggest weapons, just couldn't hurt Shapo. It was free swings for Shapo, could do whatever he wanted in that match, and thus was able to find his first rhythm of the season. He needed the win. He's outside the top 100. Shapo now 1-3 victory, currently sitting at number 127 uh, in the live rankings. How about Arthur Cazot wins a challenger week number one, makes a second week of a major for the first time in his first main draw at a major in Australia. Now gets a main draw win in Montpellier. First round, one and three win over Max Martyr. Again, he has started his season nine and one through his first 10 matches, wrapped off another 11 aces as well. Clear the 21-year-old Frenchman has made a jump. Now he gets a real test, going to face uh, down the gauntlet of the indoor weapons of Felix Ogier Aliassim uh, in the round of 16. Uh, beyond that, uh, excuse me, yeah, beyond that, you look at the results. Big win for Michael Moe, 3-5 and five over Benjamin Bonzi when he's healthy. He's a top 100 player, particularly on hard courts. And yeah, I mean, again, now you start to look forward, right? Really fun round one matchup between two extraordinary athletes. Eighth-seeded Gaio Monfi taking on the talented young Italian, Flavio Caboli. You want big hitting? How about Alex Shevchenko versus Dalibor Srivinsa? I worry about Srivinsa having the speed to deal with the heaviness of the Shevchenko ball, but Shevchenko obviously trying to bounce back after a disappointing Australian Open. You look at the tennis abstract singles forecast as of right now. Holgaruna again, 26.7%. After that, FAA, 21.4%. Chorich, your number four seed, 11.8%. Obviously, he's trying to get some rhythm coming off of a challenger final last week. Uh, Gael Mofi, your number eight seed, 11.6%. Uh, again, all guys trying to play, build their rankings back up, ensure that they don't have to deal with qualifying or too difficult of early round matchups come the sunshine swing. That is your ATP uh, tour level action. On the challenger side of things, non-Cleveland division, you look at the action happening in Roblenz right now, your favorite according to Tennis Abstract. Second seeded Brandon Nakashima, who's going to take on qualifier Philip Krajinovic, trying to work his way back. Nakashima uh, back inside the top 100 after the run of challenger success he has had of late, up to number 95 in the line ranking. So again, he did what he needed to do. Not a lot of success for him at the tour level in 2023 to steady the ship, regain his confidence. He went down to the challenger level, racked up some wins, racked up some confidence. He's the favorite, but again, he's facing the second favorite, Krajinovic, in his round of 16 matchup. You've got Lloyd Harris, former top 50 player in the draw. And then the wild card, lefty American Martin Dom. First set win over six-seeded Matteo Bellucci in round number one. Sets up a fun matchup with veteran Mikhail Kukushkin in round two. I'm just telling you, the big lefty's got real weapons. He's one to watch for if you haven't already. Keep an eye on the young American in Koblenz. In Bernie, Ricky Hijikata trying to defend a title. Hijikata down 14 spots after that title came off of his resume. Still top 100 at 88. He got a first-round win, 4-2. Now matched up against fellow Aussie Omar Jessica. That match is going to be physical. Uh, but... Look, Kijikata is the favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, 38.5%. After that, you've got Yasutaka Uchiyama, 12.5%. Mark Pullman's 11.9%. Adam Walton, 10.8%. They're all on the other side of the draw. That's the real thing for Hijikata. He should make a run back to this Bernie final and, again, make a, another top eight push as he tries to set things up for the sunshine swing. And then some action at the Pika Recaba, uh challenger as well. I believe this one's on clay. Top seed Federico Coria, 
19.1% favorite. Ugo Arabelli, the two seed, 26.1% favorite. Cecinato, 19.7. I'm not going to lie, of all the matches, that's I'm not, I'm not quite ready for clay tennis. I'll save that for when the South American uh, clay court swing begins. But last but not least, let's talk some Cleveland Challenger. Uh, obviously, again, ATP Challenger event as such, not going to have a wave of top 100 players. Our top seed in this event is the Aussie, James Duckworth, currently sitting at 98. He is, I believe, the lone top 100 player in the draw. You look at uh, everything else, we've got your number two seed, a rising young American, Zachary Svida. Ton of Challenger success of late. Saw him obviously push Sarundalo at yeah, last year's U.S. Open. The 21-year-old currently 144 in the rankings. How does he suit on indoor hard courts? He's going to get a real test. James Trotter, former Ohio State All-American NCAA doubles champion last year, who just has real weapons, going to be very comfortable on this surface. He's now top 500. After, uh, you know, Again, he's made a bunch of challenger quarterfinals of late as he continues to kick off his pro tennis career. That's a fun contrast of styles in round number one. You've also got another guy kicking off his career last year's NCAA singles champion, Ethan Quinn. Now, he struggled for six months out of the gate, but some real success, Charlottesville, uh, Knoxville to end last season. Uh, Knoxville, Charlottesville, and Champaign, excuse me, gets a win over eighth seed in Aiden Mayo in round one. Now sets up a matchup with Stefan Kozlov, who I'm not going to do a Stefan Kozlov rant because I've done too many of them over the years here. Other players, again, Emilio Nava. We know how good his weapons can be. He's the three seed. He's taken on the big hitting Bay- former Baylor All-American uh, and I guess current Wake Forest Demon Deacon in Adrian Boyton, Dennis Kudla in this event, Tennis Sandgren, a couple of top former top 50 players in this event, Mitchell Kruger coming off of an Indian Wells title, the American veteran in this event. And then how about my guy, qualifier Patrick Maloney? Fresh off of, again, his Michigan career. He's looking to kick things off, qualifies into this event, gets a round one win, and sets up a date with top seed James Duckworth. So biggest storylines as we look at this, again, it's the wave of young Americans with massive opportunities. Guys like Ethan Quinn, Zach Sfida, who are trying to make top 150 pushes. How is their level stack up against these veterans that they're facing off against? A guy like Emilio Nava, is he ready? Is he consistent enough now? We know the power is there, but as he ages towards his mid-20s, he's consistent enough now with that power to be a real threat. And then again, the veterans, Kruger, Sandgren, Kudla, Duckworth, are that, you know, again, the physicality, the institutional know-how, is that enough to separate them from the rest of this field? Those are things I will be watching for throughout the week as I am excited to be on site once again at an event, my first road trip of this 2024 season. That said, that's your look at everything happening this week on the ATP Tour. Now, of course, we will do our best to get these podcasts out to you each and every day this week as we watch all of the action unfold. Again, if that schedule varies a bit, it's because I am in Cleveland and I've got obligations. Nevertheless, I promise I won't leave you hanging. And of course, hopefully, I'll be able to speak with some players on the grounds. If I do, you'll be able to hear those conversations over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. So make sure you're subscribed to that, the Great Shot podcast feed, our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel as well, so you don't miss out on any of our coverage. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.